Hello and welcome to the Kinetic Fitness Show, where we inspire you to live a longer, healthier, happy, and more joyful life. We cover everything you need to know to be optimally healthy in your mind, body, and spirit. Are you ready to become the ultimate version of yourself? Well, let's dive into another episode with your host and guide by your side, Allie West. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 91 of the Kinetic Fitness Show podcast. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? How's your mood? Hope you're doing well, or I trust you're doing well and looking after yourself and your health and well being. It's currently hammering down with rain here in Nottingham in the United Kingdom as I record this intro. But it's all good. I'm not letting the rain or the weather affect my mood. I'm feeling great, feeling awesome and ready to bring you a cracking episode, an amazing episode. My guest today is somebody that really inspires me, somebody that I admire. I'm a bit of a fan, if I'm honest. I am a fan of my guest today. And when he agreed to come on the podcast, to come on the show, I was very, very excited. I think I did a little a little happy dance or a little jig because I am a, I'm a true fan. But before I introduce him and before I tell you a little bit more about my guest today, there's just a few announcements and I would really appreciate it if you do listen to these announcements because they help support the show, but they also help me to grow the show as well to inspire and reach more people and help more people. If you can only do one of the things that I'm about to mention as well, I will be happy because just one of them helps me and helps the show and helps support the show. I want to start off by mentioning that this podcast today is brought to you by Mudo Health. Mudo Health is a DNA testing company who give you a breakdown of your DNA health via a DNA sample. It's really, really simple to do. You order your kit from them. It's sent out to you. You take a very small saliva sample. You post it back to their lab. That is then analyzed by their lab full of experts in nutrition, health, science, And within a few weeks, you have a breakdown of your genetic health, your DNA health. This is all on an app that is very, very simple to use and very detailed. And you will get over 90 reports on your health and well-being from a genetic level, including but not limited to your physical health, stress levels, supplementation, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, athletic performance, sleep, plus much, much more. If you want to grab yourself a DNA testing kit, if you want to get your hands on it and learn about your health on the deepest level, it's real simple. Just click the link in the description of this podcast, head over to their shop, order your DNA testing kit, and then at checkout, put in the code ALDNA. That's A-L-D-N-A, ALDNA, A-L-D-N-A. And you will grab yourself 20% off your DNA testing kit. Go and grab it today and learn about your health on the deepest level, which is your genetic DNA health. Okay, a few more announcements. The first thing is to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Really, really simple. Hit that subscribe button and you'll be updated with all of my latest episodes. Secondly, if you are able to leave me a review, please do leave me a review. They help me out. They help me to grow, reach and inspire more people. And I also love reading them as well. So please do leave me a review. The third thing is to simply share this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, and loved ones. 
One of the best ways that you can share this podcast and more people can learn about it is through the power of social media. So just grab a screenshot of this episode, post it to your social media, tag me in it, Ali West Coach, A-L-I-W-E-S-T-C-O-A-C-H, or simply Ali West if it's on LinkedIn, and I will share it with my friends, followers, family as well. The podcast is now on YouTube, so if you would like to watch as well as listen to the interviews that I do, then you can head over to YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just search for The Kinetic Fitness Show on YouTube, you will find it, hit subscribe, and then you can watch and listen to all of my podcast episodes. Please bear with me, I'm slowly but surely uploading them all to YouTube, so they will be up there eventually, but there's plenty of episodes to get you started on YouTube. The final thing to mention is our 12-week online coaching program. So I have a question for you. Would you love to drop 20 pounds of body fat, improve your relationship with food, and take control of your health in just 12 weeks? Well, if you would, we can coach you how to do exactly that. Our 12-week online coaching program covers everything you need to know to take you from where you are now to where you want to be. We focus on three key areas, mindset, nutrition, and exercise. This is all underpinned by coaching and accountability. So if you are ready to blast away body fat and take control of your health for good, all you need to do is hit the link in the description of this podcast to book a personal one-to-one Zoom call with me where I can learn more about you, your goals, and explain our program in more detail and ultimately see if we are a good fit for each other. Just click the link in the description, fill out the short application form and book your call as soon as you can because spaces are limited. I look forward to coaching you, inspiring you and helping you. Right, on to today's episode. My guest today is Patrick McKeown. Patrick is the president of Beauty Co Professionals International. He is also a member of the management board and the advisory faculty of the International Academy of Breathing and Health. Patrick was educated at Trinity College Dublin and later studied in the Moscow Clinic of the founder of the Beautico Breathing Method, the late Professor Konstantin Beautico. He was honoured to be awarded a diploma in the Beautico Method by Professor Beautico. Patrick's current professional affiliations include being a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, a member of the Physiological Society and a member of the Academy of Applied Myofunctional Sciences. Patrick has penned seven books and is the international best-selling author of The Oxygen Advantage, the simple scientifically proven breathing techniques for a healthier, slimmer, faster and fitter you, and creator of The Oxygen Advantage Method. Patrick McKeown is widely regarded as one of the world's leading breathing re-education experts. Whether you're a weekend warrior or an Olympic athlete, Patrick's methods provide a fast, simple, scientific and certain way to revolutionize your sports performance and improve your daily well-being and health. Over the past two decades, Patrick has trained thousands of people around the world to safely challenge their bodies and produce positive changes through breathing re-education. He teaches a new way to breathe combined with specific exercises designed to improve blood chemistry. The result is an increase of oxygen flow to all the body systems, meaning greater endurance, strength, and power. Patrick's mission is to empower you to make tremendous gains across many body systems, vital to reaching your optimal sports performance. 
In this episode, you will learn how Patrick got into breathwork by accident after being a lifelong asthma sufferer, why nasal breathing is so important and beneficial for your overall health, how to become a nasal breather. You will also learn the science and mechanics of breathing and why carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas. You will learn how taping your mouth whilst you sleep can stop snoring and improve your sleep quality. Why nasal breathing is so beneficial in athletic performance and how it can give you the edge. You will also learn how facial structure is impacting our breathing. Some simple methods for assessing your breathing rates. You will learn why breathing exercises are more important than mindfulness. How big pharma companies don't necessarily have your health and well-being and the health of individuals as their number one priority, plus much, much more. So in this episode, we really take a deep dive into nasal breathing and go in on the importance of breathing through your nose. This is not the first time we've covered breathing on this podcast, but for me and for Patrick and for some of the other guests that we've had on talking about breathing, it is a fundamental part of your health and well-being, something that is easily accessible, but can have such an impact on your overall life. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get stuck into today's episode. This is episode 91 of the Kinetic Fitness Show podcast with Patrick McKeown. Enjoy. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing, mate? Good, Ali. How are you? I'm brilliant. Thank you. Uh, I know you're extremely busy, so I appreciate you taking your time out to speak to me. Sure. No worries. No problem. I'm uh, I'm excited about this one as well because I am a bit of a a fan and I love what you're doing. I love your work. Uh, love your book so I'm really keen to pick into your your knowledge your wisdom your expertise and share it with the audience as well sure of course great yeah it's good to get good to get the awareness of breathing out there you know it's been a it was a slow burner for many years and then the last two years and last probably last three years it's it's really taken off so I think it's it's a topic that's hot at the moment yeah definitely I mean we've uh, we've already spoken quite extensively about it on this podcast but I know that you are very experienced in the whole topic but also there's a lot of the scientific scientific areas that uh, come from it as well which i'm really interested in but a good starting point is to just share your story with the listeners and just explain who you are what you do how you help people because there will be some people that don't know who you are and be great for them for you to share that knowledge with sure them. yeah i came across breathing by accident i came across it in 1998 uh, my background is that my my education is in economics and I went to a university in Dublin called Trinity College in Dublin. And I studied economics and I entered the corporate world. But I had very bad asthma, which was getting worse. And I had sleep problems, which was getting worse. And that typically goes hand in hand with asthma. So if you have a breathing problem such as asthma, you don't just have a breathing problem. You typically have a sleep problem. And the other aspect of that is that when you wake up feeling tired and exhausted and you don't have the resilience, then you have a stress problem. So you're not able to cope with what life is putting out there and you're not able to concentrate. You don't function. So I was a chronic mouth breather, upper chest breather, fast breather. It's not that I was having asthma attacks all the time, but my breathing was off. And that's the way it is for most people. It's not that, it's not that people are having asthma and panic attacks and hyperventilating. That's only the tip of the iceberg. It's the everyday breathing that could be just a little bit faster and a little bit harder and through an open mouth. And that's what causes the problems. And it can be very subtle. 
So I read a newspaper article about this work of a Russian doctor and he had, he was a medical doctor and he also worked in the Soviet space race back in the 1950s and 1960s in terms of determining the ideal composition of oxygen. And I'm assuming it's in, in, in the capsule, space capsule. So he, when he was working with his patients, he noticed that when, when people got sicker, they breathed harder, they breathed faster, they breathed more upper chest. And he asked a question, he asked was, was it their sickness that's causing their hard breathing or was it their hard breathing that was feeding into their sickness? So I read the article and he said, don't breathe hard and don't breathe through your mouth. He said, breathe through your nose and breathe lightly. So I did the exercise to open up the nose, which is simply nodding the head, holding the breath. And it opens up your nose, believe it or believe it not. And this has been known since 1923. None of this information is new but it was hidden away and it's well buried in the medical literature. And this has been discussed even with children and mouth breathing since 1909, again, buried in the literature. So I switched to nasal breathing and that night I taped up my mouth. I taped my mouth closed so I would sleep, breathe through my nose during sleep. And I wore breathe right strips also on my nose to help open up my nose, the cotton maneuver. And I woke up the first morning and yeah, kind of just getting used to it. Didn't feel massively different. Kept breathing through my nose the whole second day. And even feeling air hunger, I kept on breathing through my nose, walking with my mouth closed, at rest with my mouth closed. And that night taped up. And the second morning I woke up, it was the best night's sleep that I had, I would say, that I had ever remembered. And then I knew I was onto something. My wheezing, which had been continuous for, I'd say, 15 years, most days, every day, reduced by 50% in the first week. Now, you know, that was something that the proof was in how I was feeling. And even if somebody said to me, nasal breathing and light breathing is a load of crap, I would say to them, I'm sorry, you're wrong, because I have felt the difference. And it was massive. It was life-changing. Um, and I don't think anything could be so quick in terms of, but I was doing everything wrong. But of course, I wasn't aware of it. And typically with asthma, and you know, even in the UK, 5.6 million people are thereabouts with asthma in the UK, 8 to 10% of the population, many of them children, many of them persistently mouth breathing. And unfortunately, they are seldom advised to breathe through the nose. And, you know, it kind of makes logical sense because your nose is that organ in the body that's designed to filter, to moisten, to regulate volume, to harness nasal nitric oxide, to protect the lungs, to open up the airways, to improve oxygen uptake by redistribution of blood throughout the lungs. The mouth does nothing in terms of breathing. If you were to look into somebody's mouth and if you were to ask what part of the mouth does anything in terms of the breath coming in, no part, because the mouth is not for breathing. So in terms of functions, the mouth does nothing for breathing. And despite this, Ali, if you were to go to a local gym, how many people would be exercising with their mouth wide open? Yeah, a if lot. You go to a yoga studio, how many people are breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth? How many people are filling their lungs full of air? And the two things about breathing is breathing during rest. It should be light. And that means we should never hear our breathing during rest. And uh, it should be in and out through the nose. And I'll just I'll pass it over to you in a second. But like when we look at the detail of the breath, number one, 
Many people with faulty breathing have cold hands and feet and brain fog. And you can improve blood circulation in about three to four minutes just by slowing down and reducing breathing volume. Not enough to slow down. We have to breathe less air. And by breathing less air, carbon dioxide accumulates and blood vessels dilate, open up. So when people talk about take this full and big breaths, I wonder, do they realize, number one, it doesn't improve oxygen uptake in the blood. Number two, it doesn't increase oxygen delivery to the tissues. Number three, it can cause blood vessels to constrict. And number four, it can actually reduce oxygen, reduce oxygen delivery. And that's all based on normal medical physiology. Now, a second aspect of breathing should be looking at the biomechanics. And that's looking at the function of the diet from breathing low and the relationship with uh, functional movement. So, for example, people with dysfunctional breathing patterns typically have dysfunctional movement. You cannot have functional movement without having functional breathing. And if you don't have functional movement, you are more at risk of injury. The diaphragm breathing muscle is also connected with the emotions. So individuals who breathe a little bit faster in upper chest, they tend to be more in that fight or flight response. And another aspect then in breathing is coherent breathing. And that's slowing down the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. And with that, you were able to influence the vagus nerve. You're able to increase the sensitivity of what's baroreceptors in the, in the major blood vessels. And by virtue of doing that, to improve what's called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is a measurement of resilience and recovery. It's a clinical measure of stress in the human being. So, for example, if you have somebody, they go to their doctor, they tell their doctor, doctor, I'm absolutely stressed out of my head. And the doctor is looking at the person wondering, well, how stressed is that person? Using heart rate variability, you can get a clinical marker or measure of how stressed that person is. And then the fourth dimension in terms of breathing is using breath hold exercises to stress the body to make adaptations. So, I think when we teach breathing, we need to look at breathing in the depth to which we can go. And the potential is enormous. And people have discounted breathing. It's a load of crap. It's something that's carried out by a few tree huggers out there, the guys out with the open sandal brigades and all of that stuff. And I'll tell you one thing. We have SWAT special weapons and tactics. We have military from really high-end special forces instructors doing it. We have Olympic athletes doing it. We've got CEOs doing it. We have got high caliber people now looking to breathing because through the breath, we can improve our resilience and handling stress. We can improve our energy levels. We can improve our coping mechanisms. And that's one thing that the breath, you can influence functions normally outside of your control. People talk about exercise. They talk about sleep. They talk about diet. Breath is next. Definitely. And as you said, it can affect everything, every everything that happens in your body can be impacted and affected by your breath and what you do with it and how you manipulate it. So, I mean, there's nothing more powerful than that and it's free yes. as well. <laughs> yeah, totally. And like people might say, well, he's saying it's a cure-all. No, I'm not saying it's a cure-all. But what I'm saying is if you look at the research on heart rate variability biofeedback over the last 30 years, since the 1990s, by a researcher called Paul Lehrer, and when you look at the application of HRV, in, across many, many different conditions, the most common conditions, anxiety, depression, PTSD, so mental health issues, and also physical conditions, irritable bowel syndrome, 
um, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, rheumatoid arthritis, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, diabetes. These are very common conditions. And yes, we can influence those. And the research is there. So how do you improve heart rate variability? Number one is nasal breed during sleep. That's really, really vitally important. Number two, reduce your breathing volume to increase carbon dioxide in the blood that you feel air hunger. That will also do it. Number three, use breath hold exercises. Number four, do your physical exercise with your mouth closed to increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And number five, slow down your breathing to a cadence of about six breaths per minute at certain times of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot, uh, lot to unpack there, I think, off the back of what you've said, Patrick. But I think a good starting point would be with actual the actual mechanics of breathing because we're taught it at school, but it probably goes in one ear and out the other. And whether we're taught it correctly or not is another matter. But um, a lot of people just think, oh, we need oxygen, get as much, much oxygen in as we can, and we need to get rid yes. of this CO2. But yeah. from listening to you and reading your book, that's not necessarily the whole story. So if you could right. go into some actual mechanics and then how it should, the gases should exchange and all that kind of stuff so people can have a better understanding of the actual um, physiological and scientific workings of breathing. Sure, sure. Like carbon dioxide is a gas that's produced internally. It's produced as a result of our metabolism. So as human beings, we are consuming oxygen, we're, we're eating foods, we, can, we breathe in oxygen, and the meeting, the meeting of oxygen and food is generating energy, and carbon dioxide is produced in the process. Now, we need a certain pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood, and it's 5% of the atmosphere, and 5% 5, 5 of atmospheric pressure is in around 38 to 40 millimeters of mercury pressure. Now, the pressure of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is very, very low. It's 0.03 of a percent. So you think of it that we have 0.03% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but the human body needs 5%. There's a big difference between 0.03 of a percent and 5%. And how do we ensure that we have the ideal pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood? It's through our breathing. Because how we breathe, the volume of air that we breathe, determines carbon dioxide pressure in the lungs. And it's the carbon dioxide pressure in the lungs, in the small air sacs in the lungs, the alveoli, which determines the carbon dioxide pressure in the blood. Now, if we have a belief that it's good to breathe hard and take big breaths, we get rid of carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. So for example, it's very easy to get rid of CO2 from the blood. 30 to 60 seconds of hard breathing whether it's through the mouth or through the nose, can lower the CO2 in the blood by half. And every one millimeter drop of CO2 can reduce blood flow by 2%. So if you do 30 seconds of hard breathing, you're going to feel lightheaded. You are going to feel certain changes in the body. And it's a stressor. You're putting the body into that stress response. Now, I understand there are breathing techniques that literally do that, 30 hard breaths followed by breath tolling, it's a stressor. And it's a stressor to cause the body to make adaptations. But we need to consider how is our everyday breathing? Because many people are breathing just a little bit too fast and a little bit too hard. And as a result, they are impairing their blood circulation. As I said earlier on, it's likely that they have cold hands, cold feet. 
It's also likely that they yawn more frequently throughout the day. They wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. They're more likely to go to the bathroom during the night. They have brain fog. They're more likely to feel tense and stressed. And these are changes that can really impact quality of life. And what's more, you know, you can measure your functional breathing patterns by simply using the boat score. And like when researchers are looking at breathing, they will typically look at breathing from a biochemical, biomechanical, and a psychophysiological point of view. And a study by a physical therapist, professor of physical therapy, Kiesel, in a university in the United States, he looked at 51 subjects. Of the 51 subjects, they were 27 years of age. Only five of them had normal breathing. Five out of 51. So meaning that 46 of these individuals, so you're talking about 90% of these individuals had dysfunctional breathing and either one, two, or all three dimensions of breathing. Now, that's amazing. Like, I would never have suspected a result like that. We know with the anxiety population, it's as high as 80%. And I think that's genuine. Wow. So people with anxiety and panic disorder and high stress, it can have a huge impact on their breathing. But here is the thing, Ali. Their dysfunctional breathing is feeding back into their anxiety and back into their high stress. Yeah, so it's like a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And here is the issue. You know, these people are going to, they're spending a lot of money. They're going to cognitive training. They're, they're going to psychotherapists who are doing the best that they can do. But the psychotherapist isn't typically trained in breathing and not trained in breathing to the degree to which you could really impact change. I'm not talking about just slowing down the respiratory rate. That's not enough. We need to look at breathing in terms of not just the respiratory rate, but tidal volume, cadence breathing, biomechanics. And I'm not here to complicate it. I would rather if we could keep to everything so simple. And in a way, it's very simple. You know, I use the acronym with our own work, LSD. So light, slow, and deep. Light is all about the biochemistry. Slow is about the cadence. And deep, deep is about using the biomechanics. But most people, when they think about a deep breath, they take this big shallow breath of air, they think it's beneficial, and that's not beneficial. So yeah, so coming back to a little bit about the science, you know, the Bohr effect was discovered in 1904 by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr, and he said the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is a catalyst so for the release of red blood cells to release oxygen to tissues. In other words, when carbon dioxide in the blood increases, blood pH drops, and the red blood cells release oxygen more readily to the tissues. What more can we say? You know, despite it, despite it being discovered 116 years ago, people aren't aware of it. Because if, they were, if people were aware of it, they wouldn't be inside studios filling their lungs full of air and breathing hard. Mm. So ultimately, CO2 isn't just a, a waste gas, as we yes. are led to believe. It's very, very yes. useful. Yeah. And apparently it was one doctor who changed the whole thinking of CO2. And if you, were, if you read that book by James Nestor called Brett, and it's a best-selling book at the moment on breathing, and he will talk of, in his own research, and he, he investigated breathing, and there is a lot of commonalities with what James Nestor has said 
and what we've been saying over the years. Mm. And it's really great that we are seeing a book that's endorsing pretty much what we've been saying for 20 years. Um, and as I said to James, I said, James, I said, you're in a much better position because you are coming from the point of view of being independent and you're not involved with breathing. You're a journalist. Mm. So people will, will, will believe you more probably because they will think because I'm working in the field that I'm going to be biased or, and of course we all have our inherent biases and of course we all change. And how I teach now is fundamentally different to how I trained and worked with clients 15 years ago. And I've realized, and I've made plenty of mistakes over the past and these mistakes, and I've made plenty of mistakes with people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, um, people with asthma. And these mistakes have really honed, they've given me a, an ability and an experience to tune in on breathing and to tailor breathing to that individual. And, you know, that's the depth of the breath, you know, and I'm 20 years teaching it almost. And I realize that now I'm still only scratching the surface, mm. that the depth of this is immense. I just wrote a book. I published, well, it's not published, but I sent it to my book agent two weeks ago. It's 140,000 words. And this is looking at topics that we haven't explored to date. Women's breathing, for example, is fundamentally different than men. And this has been known since 1905. And I'm not sure how many of your listeners are female. It may be 50%. But women's breathing during the monthly cycle is fundamentally different during days 10 to days 22 of the monthly cycle. So during the luteal phase, which is post-ovulation, progesterone spikes, which is a hormone, and this stimulates breathing. And it can cause carbon dioxide levels to drop by up to 25%. And when carbon dioxide levels drop, this in turn is increasing pain. So pain thresholds lower and pain perception increases. And not only that, but it's also contributing to fatigue, exhaustion, panic, and anxiety. Now, then you have a female wondering, well, what's going on every single month that between days 10 and days 22, they are having a dip that males don't have to go through. So, you know, again, disregarded and disregarded because I suppose most of the research was done by men. And yeah, I hold my hands up and I say, I've been teaching it. It's only in the last six months that I started going down this, this field and probably because I'm a man, you know, so breathing for females is fundamentally different. The relationship between breathing and functional movement, you know, people working their core, working their core without considering the function of the diaphragm, mm. um, heart rate variability. And that is an absolute minefield. It's absolutely, it's very exciting, but it's a, it's a real rabbit hole to go down. So there is a lot more. I'm brought in a chapter on sex as well, because I think it's something that, yeah, everybody partakes in it. It's not a taboo subject now, you know, it was here in Ireland, people, apparently we weren't having it. It was all, I don't know how it was happening, happening, but you know, it's all changed. And I think people now are more open to it, but yeah, like there's the application is great and it's, it's opening up the field, you know? Definitely. hundred percent. I want to um, just touch on some of the reasoning why people are breathing in a faulty way or breathing incorrectly. So I mean, obviously, we've spoken about stress and actual people's mechanics of breathing aren't correct. But what, what's the reason? What's the root cause? Is it environment? Is it a accumulation of things? What's, what's the, the main reasons why people aren't breathing correctly? 
I think I think facial structure is definitely a contributor. Mm. Um, and that comes from the younger age, right? It's yes. From, yeah. Yeah. But there is a chicken and egg here because you're going to have young infants born and they're born with anatomically um, poor development. They can have a very high palate. In other words, the roof of the mouth is quite high. It's infringing on the nasal cavity. And already if you have a smaller nose, they're going to feel difficulty breathing through the nose, even though it's innate that infants will naturally breathe through the nose. However, infants born with a very high narrow palate, if they then get a runny nose, they, run, they can run into serious trouble and it can lead to a sudden infant death syndrome. And this is known in a paper published back in 2012 because babies don't have the ability, newborn babies don't have the ability to switch to mouth breathing in an emergency because they physically can only breathe through their nose. But if their nose is already compromised, then if they have a runny nose, the runny nose can cause hypoxia, which is so sad because mm -hmm. this could have been avoided. Any newborn baby, healthcare professionals should be looking straight into the roof of the mouth and seeing does the child have a high narrow palate and it can be very easily manipulated and changed, just even with a little bit of pressure from the tums. So an osteopath, people who are working manually with a knowledge of the palate by exerting a little bit of pressure and even just showing the mother how to do it. You know, exerting a little bit of pressure with the thumbs, maybe for 10 seconds. And the palate is, it's, you know, it's pliable, it's malleable, it's yeah. plastic. So we can help open it up. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is food that we are eating. And it's the food also of the parents. And uh, the food is going back to, like Dr. John Mew is an orthodontist in the United Kingdom. Now he's 91 years of age. He's been, he has been talking about craniofacial changes in, in children and adults for 50 years. And the dental industry, they scorned him. They said he was, they ridiculed him. And now it's starting to come to light that what he was saying has some truth in it. Mm. So because if her face is changing and he's putting it down to lack of chewing, mouth breathing, tongue sucking, tongue tie, different habits that children pick up. We know, for example, nowadays that between 25 and 50% of studied children persistently breathe through an open mouth. That's as many as one in two kids. And again, it's overlooked. These children, they can have poor night's sleep. Their concentration is affected. Their academic ability is affected. And there was a study carried out by Karen Bonnock and it was published in, I think it's the European Journal of Pediatrics back in 2012. She looked at 11,000 children in the United Kingdom and children who were mouth breathing, well, children who had sleep disorder breathing. In other words, they were snoring or they had resistance to their breathing during sleep. And mouth breathing is a contributory factor to that. These children, if untreated by age five, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs, 40%. Wow. So here you have a cohort of children. Now, these are British kids and 11,000 children. This is not a small study and well published. And again, how many parents know about that one? Not many, I suspect. So <clears throat> the problem is that the information is not getting out there. You know, John Mew has done his best. He lost his license by the British Dental Council because, of course, you know, what he was saying was, was different to mm. what orthodontists were doing. 
He was saying to his colleagues, his orthodontic colleagues, don't do extractions, don't remove teeth when you're straightening teeth. And the reason being is because if you remove teeth, it makes the mouth smaller. And if you make the mouth smaller, there's not enough room for the tongue. And if there's not enough room for the tongue, where is the tongue going to go but into the airway? Mm. And then you have a problem with sleep. Like it all makes logical sense. And he also said, don't do retraction. He said, we need to get forward growth of the jaws. And our ancestors always had forward growth of the jaws. Yeah, and bigger nostrils, didn't they? They had and like, bigger nostrils. ancient yes. schools. They've got huge nostrils. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at Caucasians, like look at my nostrils, you know, in a deviated septum, 60% of us have a deviated septum. So, you know, there is many reasons why we, we pick up faulty breathing patterns. Genetics is definitely one. And if we are pros to anxiety, et cetera, that's certainly a contributory, but you can do something about it. And that in turn then helps anxiety and PTSD and depression by improving heart rate variability. Um, and then other factors such as societal demands, you know, reduced ability for the mother to do breastfeeding. Mm. And breastfeeding is not just about nutrition, but it's about manipulation of the muscles necessary for craniofacial growth. Tongue tie, where the, the string that's holding the tongue to the floor of the mouth might be too tight. And as a result, then the baby can't get the tongue into the roof of the mouth. Eating soft foods. You know, how many children now, we're not eating the foods of our ancestors. How many kids are eating, you know, macaroni and cheese and burgers and chips and everything, you know, smoothies even. Everything that is already being chewed. You know, children aren't eating an apple now. They're drinking a, an apple smoothie. So... It's, it's eating the hard food, which is also helping to develop the muscles of the face. And this is necessary. And, you know, a good looking face and a, an attractive face. And you will, and I have to be careful how I say this, but if you go into some areas in some cities, predominantly tough areas, and if you look at the faces of individuals there, you will see that they look differently mm. than when you go into other areas. And this has always been something that I, I wondered about. And I remember like when I was traveling around Ireland, I was giving talks and huge amount of traveling. And sometimes, you know, I'd have to go into to a fast food restaurant and I don't tend to eat it. But at 12 o'clock at night, there's nowhere open. The petrol stations are mostly shut. And I would walk in, even if I was just to get some chips. And I would just look at the people in there eating. And I said to my wife, I said, God, I, thought, I, think, I think the most... The, the people who go into these fast food restaurants in the main, I don't see attractive people. Mm. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I think it's the generations of poor nutrition and nutrition and breathing going together. Yeah. And it's not just about the attractiveness of the face, but it's about the function of the face. My own face, my jaws, the maxilla is too set back. My mandible is too set back. And as a result, then you have the double chin and you have a compromised airway. So I would never be an athlete. And if you look at most athletes, they typically have good looking faces, women and men, because they have functional faces, they have well-developed jaws, they've got strong jaws, but more importantly, they have a good airway. Mm. And a good airway is key, not just for athletic prowess, but also for sleep. Makes sense. Makes complete sense. Definitely. So what would what's the a way for people to really check if they are a mouth breather or a nasal breather? What's the best starting point if they're maybe 
listen to this and they're unsure of whether they are breathing through the nose or breathing through the mouth, what's a good way of, of assessing and checking? Well, I suppose bold score is probably a handy way to do it. Um, at least it gives you some feedback of how well you're breathing. And it has been tested, you know, in terms of Kiesel's paper. He used the bold score. Um, so it basically, he looked at the 51 individuals and he found that one of the simplest way to screen for breathing pattern disorders was to have the individual sit down, take a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinch the nose and time it in seconds until you feel the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles and then let go. And his conclusion was that if your bolt score is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. Or if your bolt score, once it's, a, it's above 25 seconds, you only have an 11% chance that dysfunctional breathing is present. So the bolt score is a good place to start. I'd also say to people, the bolt score, by the way, stands for body oxygen level test. I'd also say to people is, do you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning? You should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. And here are a few reasons for that. Number one, your sleep is more likely to be lighter when you breathe through an open mouth. And you're not going to wake up feeling as refreshed. Number two, you're much more likely to snore and to hard breathe. Number three, you're more likely to have a condition called obstructive sleep apnea. That not only is the, the, the events happening more often in terms of the number of stopping of the breaths or reduction to flow of breathing per hour, but also if you stop breathing, they typically are more severe and your blood oxygen saturation is dropping quite significantly during sleep. And this is a major stress in the human body and the heart um, you know, it's linked with many, many conditions, including dementia and cardiovascular conditions. You know, so really it's something to be looking at. Mouth breathing is not good for that. In terms of dental health, we should never have a dry mouth because we need saliva in the mouth as a protective against bacteria. You know, it's, a, it's an anti-plaque agent. It protects and helps with the gums and the teeth. And number four, Mouth breathing during sleep is trauma, both to the upper airways and the lower airways. So people would ask me, et cetera. Now, people are probably saying, well, is he recommending now to tape up the mouth? Yes, I am. But there's a few different options. And um, the tape that I use going back the years was a tape called 3M one inch micropore tape. And that covers the mouth. And that doesn't suit people then with anxiety and, mm -hmm. you know, because they feel apprehensive that, well, what happens if the nose will, will block during the night? The nose will never block completely once you breathe through it. That's the one thing about the human nose. If you keep breathing through your nose, your nose will never completely block. Because even if it gets partially stuffy, that causes a reduction to flow of breathing, which in turn helps to open up the nose. Now, the tape that we did develop then, we developed a tape called Myotape, and I'm just going to show you. I'm going to show your, your listeners. I don't know if it's audio or, or visual that they look at. Both, mate. Both. Hey. So the myotape was developed in order to overcome the effect of having to tape the mouth shut. Now, it doesn't work for a beard. So anybody with a beard will have to wear That's something like three hours. <laughs> That's you out. So the myotape goes like this. It's stretchable. You stretch it. And it's the elasticity of the tape, which is bringing the... So you see the pouch. 
Now, the myotape also is helping to manipulate the muscles surrounding the face, the mouth. So the muscle, primary muscle and being the, the orbicularis orus muscle, that you're helping to exercise that muscle. And it's also for children. We use it for kids because the reason that I come up with this was how on earth can we get children breathing through the nose? You know, and I need children to wear tape on their mouth when they're distracted during the day. And I need them wearing because I need to change the behavior. Not only when we're working with children, not only are we working to open up the nose. Of course, we want to open up the nose. We want to improve their breathing patterns, but we also need to change the behavior of breathing. And the myotape is something that the child wears when they're watching TV or if they're playing with toys or if they're distracted. And every time they forget about breathing through the nose, the myotape, as soon as they open the mouth, the stretchability of the myotape reminds them to nasal breathe. And the other thing about the tape is that the kids can talk. So kids want to talk, you know? Yeah. So the other, the other option then, the tape would be, one tape that's really, really good is a tape called Lip Seal Tape. And that's from a website called lipsealtape.com. And another tape then that we were traditionally using for years was a tape called 3M one inch micropore tape. So it's basically paper tape. This involves covering them out. So you dry your lips. So either or, you know, like the one way you can be sure that you're getting your mouth closed and breathing through your nose during sleep is by taping up. How, and, how uh, quickly is the, uh, is the carryover, mate? Obviously, you said when you first did it, you was noticing differences within two days. So is it as quick as that for most yeah, people? Typically, typically in a week. Within a week, people notice the difference in their sleep. Wow, that's amazing. I know, it's very, very quick because if you've been mouth breathing, waking up in a dry mouth for many years, you know, as soon as you just stop changing the, the mouth breathing habits, now, it's not enough just to mouth, to, to mouth tape at night. We need to get the mouth closed during the day. We need to get the mouth closed during physical exercise. So for people just to be conscious of their breathing, the other thing I would say to you, it's not even just enough to nasal breathe. We need also to practice breathing light, breathing slow and breathing deep. And for example, breathing light, people can practice this just to test it, you know. They're sitting, sitting down. They just start following the airflow coming into the nose and following the airflow as it's leaving the nose. And as you follow your breathing, really slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose. And at the top of the breath, bring a total feeling of relaxation to the body so that you're having a really slow and relaxed, prolonged breath out. And then when you need to breathe in, really slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose that you're almost breathing that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. So the whole objective is for about three or four minutes, reduce the volume of air that you are taking into your body and do it to the point that you feel air hunger. And as you do that, check the saliva in the mouth, check your state of drowsiness and check if you're influencing the temperature of your fingers. Can you influence your blood circulation by breathing less air, by doing the absolute opposite to what people have been saying for years? And that's the way it is, you know, and I think it would be tremendous to see yoga being taught with an understanding of the breath from a biochemical, biomechanical and a cadence point of view. Mm. Uh, because at the moment, breath instructors, not just yoga, um, we all are 
working within our own silos. And for me, for 15 years, I was focusing primarily on the biochemistry. And I wasn't focusing enough on the biomechanics and I completely ignored coherent breathing. And then you may have a yoga instructor who's focusing on the biomechanics and they are not focusing on the biochemistry and they are not focusing on coherent breathing. And then you have heart rate variability instructor, heart math, for example, they are focusing on coherent breathing, but they are not focusing on the biomechanics and they are not focusing on the biochemistry. So that's what my new book is. It's the first time that I think that with breathing, we can't just isolate one dimension because I use the analogy of a three-legged stool. You need three legs for the stool to stand up. And with the breath, the breath is three legs. And it's the biochemistry, the biomechanics and the cadence. And they are all interlinked, by the way, because in order to breathe better with biochemistry, we need light, slow breathing through the nose. And in order for activation of the diaphragm, that we have greater amplitude of the diaphragm breathing muscle, which is the main breathing muscle located at the base of the, the lungs, we need nasal breathing. So I always say to my students, if you look down at your chest and if you take a breath through your mouth, what part of the body moves when you breathe through your mouth? And typically, it's the upper chest. Mm. So if you think of it, Ali, how many people are teaching diaphragmatic breathing, but they overlook the importance of nose breathing? And I don't think you can really get a permanent change in diaphragmatic amplitudes and good functional breathing unless you train nasal breathing. And it's not going to happen. But many instructors, they are focusing on the diaphragm, but they aren't focusing. They are not focusing on nasal breathing during sleep, during rest, during physical exercise. So, you know, it's, I think it's tremendous. Like the scope is tremendous. And when I talk about people overlooking it, this is not a criticism. This is just, you know, this is the way it is, you know. But I think it's any instructor, if, if a yoga instructor, and they wanted to add a little bit more detail to their breath practice, this would be the way to go. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's the same as, I guess, health. I mean, when I look at health, I think you've got to have all the elements in place. So you've got to look after the mind, you've got to look after the body, and then to some extent, the spiritual element as well. And yes. it's the same what you're saying there, like the three-pronged attack with the breathing, you can't necessarily have one without the other. Or if you, if you only have one, you're only looking at a third of the picture, so to speak. Yes, yes, yeah. And it, the spiritual ties in with the breath anyway. One of the Definitely. more ancient forms of meditation is just following the breath. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with mindfulness as well, the, the, oftentimes, like 10 years ago, I was working with a lot of people with anxiety. It was because of the post-economic crash here in Ireland. Things were really bad economically in 2010. Mm. And we had thousands, like I had... 3,000 people come in in one year just to do, I was given trainings on Buteco mindfulness, I call it the Buteco mindfulness method, because people were understand about mindfulness, but they don't necessarily understand the Buteco method. So I brought the two together. And with that, I was very surprised to ask, I asked all of the individuals pretty much, and many of them did mindfulness. And it would have been about 5% of the, the people coming in. And these were all people with anxiety. And then they asked, how many of you still do it? And 95% of them had stopped. So if you think of the anxiety population, people with depression, etc., yes, mindfulness can help this group, but 
this is the very group that cannot practice mindfulness. So that's where we need to be giving breathing exercises that are different. We need to be giving breathing exercises to help calm the body and to help increase blood flow to the brain. And this is where cadence breathing, this is where small breath holds, this is where nasal breathing, this is where nasal breathing during sleep comes in, that we can still impart breathing techniques to everybody. And that's when you have a toolbox that's a little bit bigger. So it's not just about Anapanasati. Anapanasati is focusing on the breath. Tremendous. Mindfulness is brilliant. It's amazing. You know, I've done the Vipassana courses. I love them. 10 days of noble silence. Absolutely amazing. And you come out of that 10 days and your mind is totally razor sharp with a stillness and a calmness to the mind with gaps between thoughts. And seldom in the Western world do the population have gaps between thought because usually the, the mind is absolutely racing. And in an ideal world, this would be taught in schools, not just as a half an hour every two weeks or something like that, but throw out geography, throw out, throw out history and replace it with teaching people the ability to handle stress because at least then they would leave school with a life skill. Yeah. And, you know, get rid of some of the academia and give them the skill to be able to cope with their own mental health issues. Yeah. And not That's just what that, mate, the, the global impact on health would be just astronomical, yes. surely. Yes, it would. It would. And this space is, is really, watch this space, because when you have companies, large multinational companies, consuming so much of these youngsters' time, making them addicted to the technology. And I know I was listening to one interview going back a few years ago and it kind of stuck with me. If you look at the founders of these high technology companies, they typically are recluses and they're asexual and they're nerds. And also then I couldn't have feeling but noticing people who spend a lot of time on these platforms and playing computer games, and I'm talking about hours and hours and hours, they generally also are recluses mm -hmm. and nerds and asexual. Now you could ask the question, was it because they were recluse and asexual and a nerd that they were drawn to living their life looking into a screen? Or was it they're living the life looking into a screen which reduced all of their social ability and communications and turned them into nerds, asexual and recluses. You know, so I think the platforms really have, in terms of mental health, these platforms should be putting aside a large proportion of their budget to help pay for the counseling and, you know, the, the therapy that's going to be needed for the millions of youngsters who are growing up with a distracted mind and with the anxiety of young girls, because girls especially, you, if you go in on Instagram, the only people that pose on Instagram are people with six packs and people who are looking very well. Yeah. That's the reality of it. So if I look on Instagram, I'm looking and I'm going through Instagram and saying, yeah, this person is good looking, good looking, good looking, good looking. And then me as a normal individual looking innocent, Jesus. I must be totally unworthy because those they're all very good looking and here I'm the normal person looking in and it's fine. I'm nearly 50 years of age and I couldn't give a care, couldn't give a damn how I look, but it'd be a different story when I'm 15 
mm. and I'd be a 15 year old looking in there and you would be really your your whole esteem would be very could be very much threatened and um, because you are seeing there's so much pressure and the youngsters don't realize that whatever people are posting on Instagram that it's it's really just one side of of life and it's totally distorted it's a totally distorted image of modern life so yeah it's kind of bizarre but the only reason i speak about that is because stress impacts breathing so yeah. i typically talk about that to the people coming in this is probably a bit of a, a hypothetical question but where do you where do you see things going with with like the medical industry and the scientific industry do you think we're going to have a big shift and uh, the stuff that we've spoken about on the show today coming more to the forefront or do you think it's just going to keep getting suppressed and keep getting pushed down or where where do you think things are going i suppose if you look at traditional institutions and the demise of such over the last few years number one many people have lost faith in education you know and the school teacher was was often regarded as the pillar of society number two many people have moved away from the church and the church was certainly in ireland and many countries throughout the world was regarded as the, the pillar of society <clears throat> number three individuals working in terms of careers going into a job at 16 years of age and staying there for life that's all changed we we now have an educated population and millennials are probably bringing change into the world as well at a very quick pace and possibly because they've seen us you know um and you're young and i'm that bit older they've seen us and i look at my own work life and the amount of time that i spend working and then there's times and I have the balance that I can connect with my breath and I can sense if I'm stressed because I'm in tune with that. And when I'm in tune and if I feel stressed, I'm going to step back. But many people don't have that ability. That it's almost that society has, they've given us a burden that we are, you know, here to work. And that's modern. You look at modern life in North America, you're looking at more, less so in Europe, but getting there. Millennials are challenging that. You know, they're talking about the tiny, tiny home movement, for example. They don't want to be doing nine to five jobs. They don't want to be stuck in front of computers. They want to be free. They want to be flexible. They don't want to buy a house when they're 30 years of age to have a mortgage, which basically means moratorium that you're paying it off until the day you die. So the, the thinking has all changed. And I think the thinking is going to change in the pharmaceutical industry that people realize that the pharmaceutical industry is not just there for the good intentions of the society, but the pharmaceutical industry is very much driven by only one thing. And that is money. That's the dollar. And you can ask yourself and people might say, well, what he's saying is being overly critical. Well, put it this way. If there was a life-saving drug for cancer, but if that drug did not promise profit, it is likely that it would never it would never reach the marketplace. Yeah. The ultimate drive. And I've seen, like, when I look at the orthodontic industry and I look at why have dentists not encouraged nasal breathing with children? Why have they not um, been identifying the risk markers in terms of sleep, sleep problems with these kids? You know, it's really unfortunate. When I look at medical doctors, why didn't they teach their asthma patients coming in? 
to breathe through the nose because the mouth doesn't do anything in terms of favoring the air for the lungs. And some people might say to me, well, show me the evidence. You, you don't need double blind randomized clinical trials showing the benefits of nose breathing for asthma. It's, it's, it's logical. It's common sense. And I can understand the need for double blind randomized big trials for pharmaceutical intervention, because if it goes wrong, people die, but you would never die from breathing through your nose. So I think, you know, I think it's really unfortunate that the medical industry has not delivered to the point that, you know, it's, it's certainly from a number of different conditions and those conditions include anxiety. Those conditions include asthma and respiratory conditions, and they include sleep. Mm. And probably they are the three more common conditions that are out there. Breathing problems, sleep problems, and anxiety problems. You know, some doctors are tremendous. So I'm not going to tar everybody with the same brush. But many doctors, they are not trained in university. And it's really the, it's the teachers in the university who are not leading the way here. The most progressive dentists and doctors and orthodontists that I have met are individuals who came across issues either with their own lives or their family life. And this was the driver for change. Mm. And the driver for change was that they studied outside of the traditional curriculum in university. They studied things that they didn't learn in university. Now, why isn't the university providing a decent curriculum? You know, that's, so there's, you know, unfortunately with human behavior, um, there's many motives and we don't know almost who's pulling the strings. We don't know the intentions of people. And people will often say, well, you know, we do this, 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 and this, and they sell it to you this way, but underlying it is a totally different agenda, you know? So that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, but change is happening. Yeah, and definitely. I think this year has really highlighted that. I think with everything that's yes. gone off this year, I think, we're bound to see see changes and I, I i think well fingers crossed i think we are going to see big shifts in in many yeah. areas not just medicine and science but economically and all other areas yes. as well so yeah it will be tremendous to see yeah. absolutely tremendous because it's really really needed definitely i just i'm conscious of the time mate so i just want to ask one sure. or two quick uh, questions the first one is um, we've not touched much on like the athletic side of things, but um, my sports football, I mean, I've played football or soccer from, from five years old and I'm 33 now. I'm probably getting towards the end of my career, but uh, sure. I, I'm a football mad. And one thing off the back of reading your book and going through Oxygen Advantage and, um, and really getting into nasal breathing and learning more about breathing, I still find that like athletic side really like challenging to, to get the nasal breathing going. I'm getting better, but I'm still, yeah. I still find it a challenge. So have you got any tips or any, any yeah, sure. about the athletes out there to get them like with the mouth shut, get them breathing through the nose while they're in that kind of athletic or sporting environment? Sure, sure. Like your ability to do physical exercise with the mouth closed is going to be influenced by a couple of factors. Number one is the size of the nasal entry, the size of the nose, um, your ability to handle airflow. Number two is both score because Boat score is a measurement of the degree of breathlessness during physical exercise. So for example, if you have a low boat score, breathing is typically harder and faster. Mm. Um, and those two combined. So say for instance, if we have an athlete with a high boat score of 35, 40 seconds, 
with really good nostrils. That, that athlete will be able to run prob probably high, full 100% work rate intensity. No problem. But then if you have another athlete with a boat score of 15 seconds and a, a nose that's compromised like mine, they won't be able to run with their mouth closed because the air hunger is too much. So a few things that at the start, when you switch from mouth to nasal breathing during exercise, the air hunger is that little bit stronger. But if you continue doing your physical exercise with the mouth closed, the air hunger diminishes. So it is a case of practice. And one of the benefits, when I look at the work of Professor George Dallam, D-A-L-L-A-M, he's a professor in sports science from one of the universities in the United States, a very well-known recreational athlete, but also trained very elite, high-level athletes. He did a study with 10 recreational athletes. He got them breathing through their nose during all physical exercise for six months. And then he measured <clears throat> what happens after six months of nasal breathing during exercise when adaptations had taken place. Number one is they were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity breathing through the nose versus the mouth. Number two, the fraction of expired oxygen was less with nasal breathing, meaning that the body utilized oxygen better. Number three, carbon dioxide in the blood was 44 millimeters of mercury with nasal breathing, 40 millimeters of mercury with mouth breathing. Higher CO2 would be a catalyst for the release of oxygen to the working muscles, so therefore less lactic acid, etc. Number four, ventilation was 22% less with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. So there's an economical saving. So there is an intensity that which individuals will have to generally switch from nose to mouth breathing. But what I would say is that all low intensity and medium intensity is best that the athlete can do it continue with sustained nasal breathing. And when you want to push it, switch to, you could go nose, nose. And then when the intensity gets too high, go in through nose and out through mouth. And then when the intensity gets higher again, go mouth, mouth. And then when the intensity drops back, go back from, go from mouth, mouth to in through the nose, out through the mouth. And then to, to you know, when the intensity reduces further, nose, nose. So be patient. Um, if, if I was to say the benefits of nose breathing, number one is you've got a better oxygen uptake in the blood. You've got a better oxygen delivery. You've got a better recovery. Number two, less trauma to the airways, especially those individuals with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, cyclist cough, and any sort of narrowing of the airways or frequent colds or anything like that after a long bout of physical exercise. Number three, the relationship between nasal breathing an amplitude of the diaphragm and the generation of intra-abdominal pressure and functional movement. So the other aspect is flow state. And back in 1991, two researchers, Travis and Dr. John Dulliard, they wrote a paper looking at the, the brainwave states and athletes who breathe it through their nose during physical exercise. They entered flow-like states. So the mind, the body, um, and the ability to perform physical exercise is actually much more advantageous than nasal breed. I don't think our ancestors were persistent mouth breeders during physical exercise. No. As you said earlier on, our ancestors had very wide nostrils. Yeah. That was to handle a large volume of air, not just during rest or sleep, but also during exercise. Yeah. Last quick question, mate. You, uh, you spoke about um, breath holds and holding the breath. Um, yes. Is, is that 
on the inhalation, exhalation, or both? No, we typically do exhalation. Um, we do a small number of breath holds will be more box breathing, etc. But typically we do just on the exhalation. And the reason being is because it has a stronger effect. Mm. So to give you an example, and here's, this is, you're talking about team sports when you're talking about football. Recently, a paper published looking at rugby um, players, rugby union players, elite rugby union players, 21 years of age, and they measured their repeated sprintability. And repeated sprintability is the ability to do all-out effort, followed by a very brief recovery, followed by all-out effort again. And they had nine reps before exhaustion. So they were, they were able to do a nine by 40 meter sprints before exhaustion. They divided the, the team into two groups, one doing breath holding and the other doing normal breathing during their print, sprint sessions. The breath hold group took a normal breath in and out through their nose, held, sorry, a normal breath in and out through the nose, held their nose and sprinted for 40 meters and then had a 30 second recovery and then sprinted again, holding the breath for 40 meters and a 30 second recovery. And they did a, a set of eight twice a week. And on the fourth week, they did three sets of eight. Now the other group, the control group were doing high intensity interval training. They were doing all anaerobic training um, and they were doing their 40 meter sprint with normal breathing. At the end of the four weeks, measurements were taken and the group, and these are elite professional rugby union players during peak season, the group who were doing the repeated sprints with breath holding on the exhalation, their repeated sprint ability increased from nine to 14.8 in four weeks. Wow. Control group, it increased something from nine to about 10. So there was some small change in the control group. But to, to be able to impart that benefit, in already professional rugby union players during their peak season, like to go from nine to 14.8 for exhaustion. Yeah. Incredible. That's why, like, you know, with the breath, you know, there's so many different applications, you know, whether it's somebody coming in with anxiety, somebody coming in with, um, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, somebody coming in with sleep apnea, with asthma, a recreational athlete, or you have an elite athlete, that you want to delay lactic acid and fatigue, or you have somebody who's in a very stressful, high stress environment that we want to improve resilience and ability to stay focused under pressure. That's what the breath can do. Something for everyone. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I appreciate your time, Patrick. That was amazing, fascinating, and touched on a lot more things than I expected us to. So that's, uh, that's amazing. And I really that's appreciate fun. your time. Great, Ali. Good chatting where, to you. Thanks very where, much. Where can the listeners go to get uh, more information, mate? Just so we can... Sure. We, we post regularly enough now on Instagram. Yeah. Um, so our channel there is Oxygen Advantage. And for health, our channel is Buteco Clinic. And same websites, oxygenadvantage.com and butecoclinic.com. Perfect. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Ali. That's a wrap on another episode of the Kinetic Fitness Show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast episode with your friends, family, and colleagues. Until next time, peace and love.